this morning we continue a, ser- a series of sermons that we're doing on um, our mission statement that we uh, will unveil bigger on Easter and uh, after that, but uh, this morning is about serving others and serving one another. Uh, you see our uh, logo there, and this morning it's about serving one another. We've talked about treasuring Christ through worship, growing together through small groups, and now serving one another um, in uh, different types of ways. And this morning we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, and we'll read these first six verses together and then talk about just the ultimate service that Jesus uh, and the pattern of his life and the example that he gives us that is just so great. And we have the scriptures to turn to to understand it better. Beginning in verse number 1, it says, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. They watched him. Do you realize people are watching? People are watching you. People are examining your life. If you have said, I'm a, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a believer in Jesus, people are watching your life. They were watching Jesus so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, He's asking this question to the Pharisees. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, Inevitable conflict. Have you ever been a part of an inevitable conflict? You could look down the road and you saw this conflict coming and you knew that there was a day when it was going to happen. And some of you may have the nature. I've been, I have friends who have the nature that conflict doesn't bother them. They, they'll meet conflict head on and they meet it on head on really quick. And then I, I'm somewhere a little bit further back. I, I don't like to, I just don't like conflict all the time. And so, but I, you can see it sometimes. It's just inevitable. It's like a train coming towards you on a track, and you know that that conflict is going to happen. Jesus knows to finish the mission that he has here on the earth to go to the cross at Calvary. He knows that there is an inevitable conflict coming. And he knows that it's coming with uh, these groups, different groups of people. And it seems like in this story here that he goes ahead and provokes this conflict. If you go back and pick up with Mark chapter 2, verse number 1, you'll see four different times between uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and the sixth verse that we just read, you'll see four different occasions where Jesus looks like he is just purposely bringing this conflict to a head. We see in chapter 2 that he heals a man, and not only does he heal that man, but he goes a step further and tells the man that his sins are forgiven. And this infuriates those who are around him. Then Jesus calls a tax collector. Later on in chapter 2, he's walking by and he calls a man named Matthew. Maybe your Bible says Levi. Uh, But he calls him to be one of his 12 disciples. And the people begin to murmur and talk about Jesus and say that he spends his time with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were the most hated group of people in all of this society. And Jesus calls one of them to follow him. And then we see Jesus is questioned because his disciples don't fast 
the same way that John, the Baptist disciples, fast, or that the Pharisees fast. And Jesus goes into a discourse about he being the bridegroom and that they don't have to fast while he's here, but when he leaves, it's the time for them to fast. So he further infuriates them. And then finally, right before we get to our verses here, Jesus goes one step further and declares himself Lord of the Sabbath. And when he does this, it really just brings things to a head. Now, this hostility reaches a climax here. There's anger on the side of the Pharisees and Herodians. There's anger with Jesus. Jesus has anger towards them. But Jesus doesn't back down. Though he understands where all of this is going to lead, he understands the consequences for all of this. He knows that the consequence is a cross at a place called Calvary. He knows that it will be his demise. Now, what is he? He is consumed. He is consumed by the will of his Father. Now, I want you to think about that statement for just a minute. He is consumed by the will of his Father. I want, I want to make this statement this morning. I have been where I, I've been in a place where I knew that I was doing the will of the Father. I have been in places where I knew that I was in the center of God's will for my life. But how many of us can say that we are actually consumed by the will of the Father? That's a hard, that's a hard question for us to answer. This past week, we lost one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived, the greatest evangelist, obviously, of the 20th century, and Billy Graham. It's a shame that our younger people don't really know who Billy Graham, uh, what, how important he was to the cause of Christ in the 20th century. And the many crusades that he led, I read different things about him this week, and, and it's estimated that he spoke in front of at least 125 million people during his ministry. That's amazing, 125 million people. It's estimated, another person estimated, that the number of people who had heard his voice would be about the total population of the earth today. Around 6 billion people may have heard his voice during the life of his ministry. But the thing that really stuck out in all the things that people said about him was this, that he was consumed... From the, from the moment that he was called, he was consumed to do the will of the Father. And look what his life, look what it birthed, the ministry that it birthed. Jesus has an uncompromising conviction. And he goes ahead, he sets his face forward in the midst of this conflict, and he begins to look toward the cross. But in looking at Jesus here, we can make this statement. And I want you to write this down. It is always right, it is always right to do good. Always right to do good. No matter what the circumstance Jesus was in, he made sure to do good. The Bible tells us that Jesus went about doing good. Now let's set the stage here, and let's talk about something real important theologically before we dive off into this story. All of these events occur on the Sabbath. Now why is that important to this story, and why is it important to us today? The Jewish Sabbath is this. It's a few minutes before sunset on Friday evening until three stars in the sky on Saturday evening. The Jewish people broke from all of their activities during that about 24-hour span there 
and they weren't supposed to do any type of work. They weren't supposed to do anything. And But Jesus had declared himself Lord even of the Sabbath. And this goes all the way back to creation because how many days did how many days did it take God to create the earth, the heavens and the earth? Six. Thank you, Micah. How, on what day did he rest? He rested on the seventh. So Jesus is using that example of the Sabbath going all the way back to creation. Now, where was Jesus during creation? He was right there. Jesus was there at the creation, so he understands the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended for the children of Israel as they left Egypt in bondage, as they left that slavery, and as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. When they finally got to Canaan, it was supposed to be a Sabbath rest for them. They were supposed to enter a land of rest and a land of plenty, but did they? They entered the land, but they never understood the Sabbath rest because they were disobedient to God, and they were assimilated into other nations over and over again and so they never really knew a Sabbath rest. But you and I this morning can understand and know a Sabbath rest. How is that possible for us this morning? I'm going to heaven by myself. We can understand a Sabbath rest through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. What did Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30? He said these words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says if we want to find true rest, the only place that we'll ever find it is in a relationship for, with him. Now let's talk about this morning. Let's talk about serving. Jesus is out and he's serving on the Sabbath. Now, when doing good for the glory of God... There's some things that we can expect. First of all, we can expect criticism. Verses number 1 and 2, Jesus goes into the synagogue here on the Sabbath, and he sees a man who needs his attention. Now, for Jesus, doing good for the glory of God is not restricted by the date or location. Now, the Pharisees see this man with a withered hand, and they do not expect Jesus to give this man any attention on the Sabbath because they say that it's not right for Jesus to do work on the Sabbath. They consider healing to be work. It would be akin this morning to if a tree fell on Micah's house this morning and it crushed the middle of his house and every possession that he had in that house was being rained upon and flooded and Seth was gathering a group of guys together to go to Micah's house to help uh, get the tree off and to get Micah's possessions out. If I stopped them and said, whoa, guys, today is Sunday. We can't work on Sunday. How many of you remember uh, when you were a kid and you couldn't go fishing on Sunday? Anybody else? Dennis, you remember that? That's the way it was when I was a kid on Sunday. You didn't, you didn't go fishing on Sunday. You didn't cook on Sunday. You didn't do anything. There weren't any restaurants or anything. Everything was closed on Sunday. I, if it, it would be if I told Seth, no, you can't go, Seth. It's Sunday. You've got to wait till midnight. Whether or not my, all of Micah's possessions are ruined, or, or it doesn't matter, today's Sunday. That would be what it would be like. You with me? So this is what the Pharisees expect of Jesus. They see a man there. There is a divine appointment. This man is there because he is supposed to meet Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows that this is a divine appointment for them. And he sees that man, and he sees that man in need. Now, if you look around... You will find people in need 
All you've got to do is look around. No matter what you're going through, you, you know the old saying, no matter what you're going through, you can find somebody who's worse off than you. And, and so here we are. Jesus sees this man with a withered, withered hand. He needs Jesus' attention. He needs to be healed. And this would be the occasion for God's power to be displayed. And Jesus has sensitivity and he has compassion for the man. And Jesus is determined that he's going to heal this man no matter what day it is. Because this man may go to his home and he may never have another encounter with Jesus. Now, think about this. In our, in our context here this morning, we can always find people in need and we have opportunities here in this church to serve and to help our fellow man. Think about the things that we have going on here. You can go right down the street here and work at the Benevolent Center any day of the week. They'd love to have you. They need volunteers all the time. We have a, a large amount of people in our community who, uh, who depend on the Benevolent Center for different times and different seasons. There's an opportunity for you there. Talk to me and I'll tell you how you can work with the Calhoun Baptist Association, the service centers that they have in Anniston, and not only be a part of serving, but of also of leading people to Jesus while you're there. If you're a senior adult here, some of you don't like to admit that you're senior adults. I get free coffee in places now because of my age. I, I, hey, I'm fine with it. But our senior adults go uh, two Tuesdays out of the month. One Tuesday they go to Gaston Regional, and they serve the people in the waiting rooms there. They pray with them, and they give them goodie bags because they may be there for days, and it gets expensive being there. And then another day, another Tuesday, they go to uh, Cherokee Village, and they sing to the people there. There's opportunities for service. Wednesday evenings, we have... Awanas that happened here uh, this past week between our Awanas and our youth we had 203 people here on campus uh, because of those two ministries now that's incredible a lot of churches won't have 203 people in their attendance this morning and we're doing that on Wednesday nights there is opportunities for you to serve children there on Wednesdays or regroup Wednesday nights our youth ministry there, you see uh, some of these people, see Terry Gallagher or see Tony Kerr and some of the other people here. Uh, that ministry is really growing. Uh, but here's what I always knew through youth ministry. The more adults that I had involved, the more kids that we could serve and meet their needs. Because when you're having 85 to 100 kids, it's impossible for Seth to know all 85 to 100 of those kids. We need more and more adults to pour into that ministry, whether it's just pouring Kool-Aid or, or whatever they have to drink or, or fixing a meal or just being there and being a presence. Because here's what happens. When things get exciting in youth ministry, guess what happens? You get flooded with middle school kids. And when you get flooded with middle school kids, what happens to your high school kids? They disappear. They don't come anymore. I saw it time and time again during my ministry. It's a perfect opportunity right now for some of you who are gifted in teaching and are led in that way to take some of those kids and allow Seth to minister to two different groups at two different times and for us to be able to continue to grow that ministry. There's an opportunity for you to serve there. There'll be a men's work day here before Easter, and we need, we need to put our best, face on, our best foot forward for our Easter service. There's an opportunity for every man here to be a part of that. Service is endless here in this church. There's always something to do, and there's always a way for you to serve. Jesus was looking for somebody to serve the day that he goes into the synagogue, 
and he found him. But guess what? When you find that person to serve, guess who's even easier to spot than the people you're serving? Your critics. Your critics. I like to call them the nattering nabobs of negativity. These Pharisees had one goal. They sought to accuse Jesus. They were enslaved to their critical hearts, and they did their best to enslave others as well. You know the old saying, misery loves company? The Pharisees are miserable people, and they wanted everybody else to be miserable with them. They put all kind of rules and restrictions on people, and so they wanted everybody to be just as miserable as them. Now, let me tell you about life as a Baptist pastor. Southern Baptist pastor. Let me tell you how it goes. Now, some of y'all think I work one day a week. Bless you. Now, here's what happens. If we are doing a lot of things here in our community and we're doing a lot of things locally and we're doing a lot of outreach locally, then I have this group of critics. I have this group of critics who say, well, now Jesus said we ought to go to the ends of the earth and we ought, to be, we ought to be here and we ought to be there and we ought to be going everywhere. So what do we do? We begin to do international missions and we begin to go places. And we, we have uh, a couple of people. I know that Pam Jones and uh, Kaylee Smith, Darby, are you going? You don't know yet? Darby's praying about going. We have uh, two, possibly three people who are going to Haiti in April to serve. Now, here's what happens. Then you start going on international mission trips, and I'm in the grocery store, and people come up to me and say, I hear y'all going on another one of them foreign vacations. Now, these people don't attend this church, so obviously somebody here in this church is critical of us going on foreign mission trips and calling them foreign vacations. And so it doesn't matter. But here's what we do. Guess what? We, we keep on serving. Every opportunity that we have, we keep on serving. Whether it's here in Piedmont or whether it's in, in an international place or whether it's somewhere other in, in the United States, no matter where it is, I learned a long time ago not to argue with, the, with those people. I just take the high road. I have frequent flyer miles for taking the high road. But I take the high road. You can expect that you're going to be criticized. Jesus was criticized. We're no better than Jesus. But you keep on serving. Don't you let anybody stop you from doing what the Lord has called you to do. Now, Jesus teaches us here also, verses 3 through 5, he teaches us to develop conviction. You know what? The, worst, the, the, the hardest thing about the age that we're in, the world that we're living in as far as the church is, is that we live with a convictionless church. We're all over the place as to what our convictions are. We have, we have, a, lot of, uh, we have a lot of things going on, it seems like, in, in the church in the Western Hemisphere. But it seems like we just have scattered priorities. We don't, uh, the, the greatest conviction that should be our conviction is not our conviction. We have groups that want to build orphanages everywhere. That's wonderful. We should. We have groups that want to end uh, trafficking, human trafficking, and want to end slavery. That's wonderful. That's what we should be doing. But, but here's, the, here's the heart of it all. The first thing that we should be doing is spreading the gospel everywhere that we can and planting churches in those places where we're spreading the gospel and then allowing that church to minister to those needs in the region where they are. And we concentrate our efforts on going to another place, just like Jess Jennings is doing in the Philippines, and we teach those people to counter those problems there. And that should be our first and, and, and greatest priority. Now, Jesus has a conviction here. 
There's no retreat in his message. There's no retreat in his action. He has courage and he has conviction. He's going to press forward. He's going to be obedient to the will of God regardless of the consequences that he faces. Now, we see this in these three verses here, in, in 3 through 5. Jesus, first of all, is right in what he's doing. I said this while I was reading the verses. People were watching Jesus. People are watching us. It's just obvious. In Mark in 3, verse 2 here, these scribes believe that his healing is a form of work, and it shouldn't be permitted on a Sabbath. Now, here's what they are. They're accusers. They are following Jesus everywhere that he goes because they're trying to build a legal case against Jesus. They realize that they just can't grab Jesus up and take him outside of the city and kill him. They are following him. They're listening to every word that he says. They're watching every move that he makes because they want to eventually have a legal case that they can take to the Roman government and say this man is causing an uprising and wants to overthrow the Roman government. So they're building their case in every single thing that he does. Now, it's a technical term, but guess what? You have an accuser. Jesus had a group of accusers. You have an accuser this morning. Who is your accuser? Satan. What is the, uh, one of the translations for the name Satan is accuser. We can go all the way back to Job chapter 1, and we see that Satan comes before the counsel of God, and when God asks Satan, where have you been, where, where does he say he's been? He's been to and fro all about the earth looking for people to accuse. And this morning, um, uh, and in Revelation 12.10, he is described as our accuser, and we see him being thrown down as our accuser. But this morning, he is your accuser. He is accusing you in every situation that you're involved in. He goes and, and he accuses you. But in that great courtroom, Jesus stands and says, that's one of mine. I took his guilt. I took his shame. I took his sin. His sins are covered. But he's still there accusing you day and night. Now, here's what Jesus does when he heals this man. He fulfills the great commandments. If you have your Bibles open, go back to Matthew 22 and look, begin at verse number 36. One of, the scribe, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus this question, trying to trick him. They said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, here's what here, Jesus says. All I'm doing here is fulfilling the great commandment. Now, the Pharisees don't understand this kind of love, and they are far from fulfilling the law of Moses. Because here's what the Pharisees have. They have a head knowledge of everything that has been written down, but in their hearts they're empty. Now, I will spend, they, they know their theology well, but they don't know what it means to have a relationship with God. Now, I will spend this week, sometime between tonight and Friday, I will spend a, a, a great amount of time, I'll probably read 500 pages of theology. This past week, I read about 300 pages 
on predestination and election. Wonderful reading. Thrilling stuff. You got a lot to look forward to, Bailey. But here's what I know. I could know every, I could memorize everything that I read. And I'd know a lot of stuff. But if I don't know Jesus here, what does it matter? If I don't have a relationship, I had a professor, I had a professor tell me this one time. He knew a professor, he knew a professor who could quote the book of John in Greek and in Hebrew. He could quote it verbatim in Greek and Hebrew. Now, you know what? Someone asked that professor who could do that, said that has to be a great tool to you in sharing the gospel. And he said, oh, I, I, I know it. I don't believe it. I just know it. Now, what good is it going to do him someday? Not going to do him any good to have known it and know it in the original languages that, that it's written in, but not have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is right in what he's doing, and then he's right in what he says. He's not intimidated by his opponents. He makes this Sabbath healing, and he does it. He makes it, he intentionally does it out in public, and he causes the Pharisees, the Pharisees who are listening to what Jesus says and watching what Jesus does, the Pharisees now are silent. They can't speak. The silence of the Pharisees shows their hardness of heart. Now Jesus is angry at them, and he asks this question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Jesus asked the right questions, and it's shocking, and it's really sad because the Pharisees can't respond. They are supposed to be the religious leaders and the religious representatives of the people, but their silence condemns them, and it also shows a great flaw in their theology concerning the nature of God. Because God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of love. And God is a God of compassion. But the Pharisees see God as a God of rules and a God of regulations. They don't know the intimate relationship of having Jesus, of, of having a God who extends grace and mercy and love and compassion. And Jesus is not silent on these things. And he speaks and it causes them to be silent. And now Jesus is right in how he feels. He has a right to be angry with them because of their silence. Now here's something that I have to be careful of in my life. I have strong convictions. I have very strong convictions. And I voice those convictions. But I have to be careful to not let my convictions cloud my judgment when it comes to ministering to people. Because I see people in all types of sins and I have convictions that tell me that those sins are horrible sins and great sins and, and that the world is embracing great sins. But I have, to be, I have to be very careful not to let my conviction cloud my judgment because I am a great sinner. And I stand in need of a great Savior. And I have to look at people, no matter what their walk of life or no matter what their situation, and say, but for the grace of God, go I. I could still be lost in my sins, but Jesus forgave me. Now, the question that Jesus asked, whether it was to, uh, to do good or to do harm, 
they should have answered to do good. That wouldn't have violated the Old Testament law. But it would, here's what it would have violated. It would have, it would have violated all of the extra things that they added to the law to be a burden on people and to try to make themselves look good. Their traditions missed the point of all of the Mosaic law. All of the law was written so that we love God and we love our neighbor, that we stretch out our hand to other people. But, but they were holding on to their traditions, and because they were holding on to their traditions, they were causing all the people who were around them not to come into the temple and to be able to worship because of the things that they had laid on them and not the things that were God's word. And so hundreds of people that Jesus were reaching were, were being able to enter into a relationship with God because they weren't having to go through all the hoops and things that the Pharisees had set up. Now here's what I want to, to... We are holding on to tradition at the sake of the next generation. We are holding on to, to, to man-made 20th century and, and, and in some cases 19th century traditions we're holding on to them so hard, and they're just tradition. And we're, we're going to lose the next generation because of that. And those in the next generation who are being attracted to church are being attracted to something that is shallow and superficial and something that is just smoke and mirrors and still don't have relationship with the Lord. So Jesus is grieved about this situation, and we should be grieved and praying. Their, their hardness of heart shows their pride, and their pride is so deceitful that it provoked the Lord to anger. And Jesus knew that he was going to face opposition. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we see that they come together to oppose him. For some, it's not enough to do the right thing. If you don't arrive at the correct destination by the corrupt route, you get criticized and misrepresented. Now, there's, there's, there's something going on here. There's a concept here called the enemy of my enemy is my friend. These two groups here hate each other. The Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other. But what brings them together? Jesus. Their common hatred of Jesus. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. In 1979, the Soviet Union, just one day out of the blue with no warning, rolls tanks into Afghanistan and begins a siege on Afghanistan to overtake that country and to more solidify their position to get closer to Europe. And they're fighting against a ragtag group of people there in Afghanistan who have no supplies, they have no money, they have nothing in the world to fight this great force that's coming toward them. But who was our enemy? Our enemy was the Soviet Union. And we didn't know anything about this group of people here all that much. We didn't seem to. So what do we do? We armed that group of people to the teeth. We armed them with everything that we can give them. And so they stopped the Soviet threat there. I had a professor who told me about 30 years ago, he said, Mr. Ingram, remember this. It was the Soviets. It is the, he said, it was the Russians. It is the Russians. It will always be the Russians. Our news, our news is showing that this, these past couple of weeks. But here's what. We armed this group of people to the teeth, and who are they trying to kill today with what we armed them with? 
They're the Taliban in Afghanistan, and they're not fighting the Soviet Union anymore. They're fighting against the, they fight against us, and they fight against the rest of the world. So our enemy was their enemy. We, we armed them to the teeth, and look, it, it came back. And that's just my political opinion. I don't expect any more money for that. But now think about, these are two great different groups of people. The Pharisees say that they're a religious group of people. The Herodians are a secular, worldly group of people. The Herodians support Herod of Galilee and the Herodian family dynasty that controls that region for Caesar. Now, as soon as Jesus does what he does here, the Herodians seize upon this opportunity. They see how angry the Pharisees are, and they seize upon this opportunity, and immediately these two groups of people who hate and despise each other come together because they want to destroy Jesus. The Pharisees want to destroy Jesus because he's teaching that this, their, their religious ways are not the ways of God, and that he is the way. He is beginning every time he encounters them, he's showing them more and more that the kingdom of God is at hand, that he is the kingdom of God, and they have to repent. And they don't want to hear that. The Herodians want to keep Jesus in check because they're afraid of all these people following him. They are afraid that there's going to be a mass uprising and that they won't hold their position any longer. And so these two groups that hate each other come together to hate Jesus. Now, later on, we'll see where Herod and Pontius Pilate, who hate each other, will also come together to unite against Jesus. Does it not seem that more and more in our world, more groups of people attack what we believe and our belief in Jesus? More and more we see the academic world and the government world and all of the things in the, we see the attack upon our belief in Jesus. We see the attack on Christianity grow more and more. Groups of people who probably have nothing in common, but they have one thing in common, and that is their hatred of Christianity and, and Jesus Christ. So these two groups hate each other, but they're united because of their hate for Jesus. And they immediately conspire against him together. So the common enemy we fear most will seek sometimes to destroy. These two groups want to destroy Jesus. They hate him because they are fearful of him. And this is going to lead to the unspeakable evil of the murder of Jesus. These two groups will continue to conspire together until they murder Jesus Christ at a cross on Calvary. Now, why would Jesus grow, go to such great lengths? Why would he infuriate this groups of people why would he serve this man with a withered hand who can't do anything for Jesus in return? He can't give Jesus anything back. And in doing so, cause this great sense of hatred toward him. Because Jesus answers this question later on in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. 
He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He was being served in heaven. He was on a throne in heaven being served by being worshipped all the time. Completely being worshipped. He left that throne and came to this earth, took on the position of a servant as humbly as he possibly could to serve others and then ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. Brings us to this. Christian, how are you serving? How are you serving? I gave you, I gave you examples earlier of the, of the many opportunities we have to serve here some of you go to places of work and to places of school and to places in your family. You see more opportunities to serve other people than I see in a week. How are you serving? What is, are, are you consumed by doing the will of God and by serving other people the way that Jesus was our example? And then secondly, to those here this morning who, who you're you're listening to this, and you're realizing that maybe you're like those Pharisees. You have a lot of knowledge here about Jesus. You know a lot about him here, but here in your soul, you've never given your soul to Jesus Christ. You've never said to him, I am a sinner. I need to turn from these sins. I need to give you my complete life, my whole life, and I need to allow you to be in charge. Maybe that's you. Maybe this morning you could come into this relationship that Jesus is offering these groups of people and they despise him and turn away. And it doesn't matter this morning. Maybe you don't despise Jesus. Maybe you admire Jesus. Maybe you think Jesus uh, was the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. Maybe you even believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Let me tell you, the Bible says that even the demons believe even the demons believe and they shudder. It is not until you ask for forgiveness of your sins, repent of those sins, that you come into relationship with him. And this morning I'm offering that opportunity to you to come and know Christ as your Savior. And to, to think about, if you are a Christian, to think about how am I doing in my service for the Lord? And how can I join in this group of people here this morning that are serving? And how can we serve this community and the others around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Mike is coming this morning to give us a time of reflection, an invitation, a time of worship. I would encourage you this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I can take scripture this morning and I can show you how to leave here today knowing that you have been forgiven of your sins and you are in a relationship with him and you'll be with him in eternity forever. This morning, there's nothing more important going on in this world than that decision for you. Would you stand? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your example of service. Thank you for your example of sacrifice. Thank you most of all for salvation. Thank you for freely giving your life as a ransom for everyone here this morning. And Father, I pray this morning that as we take these moments, that we would be wise in how we use them. 
If we need to worship, then we should worship. If we need to pray, then we should pray. If we need to come to a decision about salvation or baptism or membership or whatever it is we need to do, and let's take care of it this morning before this hour closes. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. While Michael leads us, would you come?